Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The new House Special Committee on Competition with China holds its first uh, hearing in what seems to be a rare bipartisan undertaking in Washington these days. What does uh, Chairman Michael Gallagher have in store and what does this portend for the changing public perceptions about China and for the agenda of the 2024 presidential candidates? Plus, two Democratic senators defect their colleagues to join Republicans to overturn a Biden Labor Department rule on investing based on so-called ESG rules, environment, social, and governance criteria. This is likely to be President Biden's first veto. So what happened there? Joe Sternberg is with me here. I'm Paul Gigo with the Wall Street Journal opinion page. And Joe is one of my colleagues, as is Alicia Finley, who's also here. Alicia and Joe, welcome. Let's talk first about the ESG rule, something of a surprise that after the House passed a Congressional Review Act resolution to overturn the Labor Department rule that went to the Senate, and it only needs a 51-vote majority to pass under Congressional Review Act rule. And of course, the Democrats hold a majority in the Senate, but uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, John Tester of Montana, say they will join the Republicans to uh, overturn the rule, and that means it would go to the president's desk, and he has to decide whether to sign it and rebuke his Labor Department or veto it. So, Alicia, tell us first, what did this rule say? What does it stipulate? So this rule actually kind of overhauls and reverses a rule that was promulgated by the Trump Labor Department, Eugene Scalia, that would require asset managers to place the pecuniary interests of uh, planned participants, workers, and retirees above anything else. This was really the Trump rule really just clarified what's already required under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act that requires, this is actually in the text, that the plan sponsors act solely in the interest of the participants and beneficiaries. Yeah, just let me clarify something, Alicia. So you're talking about the Scalia rule, the Trump rule said, look, you have to maintain your focus on shareholder returns, right? Right. Or in this case, the participants and the beneficiaries, the retirees and the workers, because it was a labor department rule, it would apply specifically to... Pension funds and retirement right, exactly. plans. exactly. Okay. Multi-employer or 401ks. Okay, so that was promulgated in the Trump administration. That prevailed as guidance and regulation. Enter Biden Labor Department. What did the Biden rule do? So it reversed the Scalia, the Trump rule. And it put forth a more nebulous standard that allowed plan sponsors under a fiduciary rule to consider other factors, ESG factors in particular, environmental, social, governments, broad range of factors. And these could include climate, labor organizing, worker diversity. And it eliminated specifically the requirement that there must be a material effect of these factors on a 
company or the returns. So this is introducing political factors into investment decisions, it seems to me, right? Right. And it would give them the Black Rocks of the world and other asset managers, even the union multi-employer plans, legal cover to do so. Because there's a huge liability risk under the 1974 ERISA. Were they to do so otherwise? Were they to prioritize some of these other factors like climate in their investment decisions? So this would essentially provide them legal cover to do so. It's a really important point. What it means is that under the, the classic rules of ERISA, if you decided, I'm going to take that pension fund and I'm going to put it into one of my pet political causes and you didn't do well. You could be sued by the pensioners and others for not getting adequate returns. This is basically Labor Department cover that says, yeah, you can do this and you have some protection from suits. Right. So all that they need to merely state is that this factor, whether it be climate, companies, labor policies, is in some way relevant to the risk and return calculation, which is, again, a very expansive standard that would essentially allow these retirement sponsors to use political considerations however they want. Yeah, very broad definition here of ESG. And Joe, the backlash is fascinating. Two or three years ago, and I have to give Alicia credit for this in particular, she started noticing this and writing about maybe even much longer than three or four years, four or five, going back to when ESG first emerged as a political and financial cause picked up by Larry Fink at BlackRock and a variety of other folks and was a real trend, has been a real trend in finance, thus the interest of the politicians to get on board. And yet here we are in the Biden administration and Republicans take the House and they pass a resolution to repeal it. And then a couple of Democrats get on board. How did that happen? Well, I don't think anyone should pretend to be surprised that ESG investing has ended up being this politically controversial over the past couple of years. If you kind of understand the broader context here, I think Alicia is absolutely right to talk about this in terms of climate, which I think is one of the big policy priorities of the Black Rocks of the world, the big asset managers who are most excited about ESG investing here. The specific problem that they need to solve, that the climate left needs to solve, is that the transition to net zero is going to be astronomically expensive, and it has turned out to be politically impossible to get taxpayers enthused about paying for all of that. So, you know, that's how you end up with things like the outcome of, of one of these COP summits uh, in Glasgow a couple years ago where they were going to try to mobilize $130 trillion in investment for climate goals from the private sector. And ESG investing was going to be one of the mechanisms to do that. Well, I mean, think about this. If the problem is that you can't get taxpayers to do it because it turns out that that is going to be politically toxic for a variety of reasons in a variety of different countries, why would we think that it is going to be any more popular when you are asking people to essentially gamble with their own pension money? And so I think that that really is where this is run aground. I think it is because voters and the politicians who represent them are figuring out that this is an attempt to you know, dragoon pension savers in the private sector into paying for things that taxpayers didn't want to pay for directly. Right. And the COP summit, of course, is the climate summit that now we seem to have one of these every year. So the political backlash is fascinating. State attorneys general in Republican-leaning states, many of them have tried to block their state treasuries and pension funds from investing in companies that do invest on 
ESG criteria. But in the Senate, Alicia, you have John Tester and Joe Manchin saying they'll join Republicans. So this is likely to pass. Before we get to what Biden will do, don't mean to be cynical here, but John Tester and Joe Manchin are both up for re-election in 2024. And it seems to me that likely here is that they are buying some political protection, some political insulation here by saying, see, we're voting against my party on this. And even though it's not really a high risk vote for them from the left, because they assume, I think, that Joe Biden will veto this and therefore the rule will continue to hold. Right. So Biden has already you know, promised to veto it. He issued a veto threat the other day. So I think this was a smart political move by Tester and Manchin. I'm actually surprised some other Democrats didn't jump on board, too. I think that Schumer essentially gave some of them a pass. And that's what the reporting suggests is that Schumer didn't really push very hard. I mean, he did write an op-ed in our paper, tried to defend the rule, which I thought was very misleading arguments. But I think a lot of the Democrats in the Senate or some that are up for re-election really need to try to distance themselves from the Biden agenda and progressivist agenda, especially on these ESG factors, the climate, some of the social, the woke issues. And I think this is a way for Tester and Manchin in particular to do so. Again, it also puts other potentially vulnerable Senate Democrats on defense, and they may have to explain their vote on this issue and other Congressional Review Act resolutions that House Democrats are planning to pass and Senate Republicans, and you only need one senator to bring up a resolution under the Congressional Review Act. So you could actually see more of such resolutions that try to overturn Biden rules come up and put, again, these senators on defense. Right. House Republicans are going to try to uh, pass those resolutions. House Democrats will be opposed. One of those coming up, the waters of the U.S. rule regulation, highly restrictive uh, use of waterways by American citizens. And Joe Manchin has already signaled he's likely to vote against that as well. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the new House China Committee, bipartisan committee that is focusing on the competition between the U.S. and China and got underway with a hearing this week. When we come back. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with uh, my colleagues Alicia Finley and Joe Sternberg. Let's talk about this new Congressional House Committee. Chairman is Michael Gallagher of Wisconsin. And the ranking member, Raja Krishnamurti of Illinois, and they're working very well together so far on this committee, going to make this to the extent that uh, Chairman Gallagher says he can, a bipartisan endeavor trying to explore the many elements of uh, U.S.-China competition. 
And let's listen to Chairman Gallagher at the opening hearing. We must learn from our mistakes. For much of the past half century, we tried to win the CCP over with honey, with engagement, believing that economic engagement in particular would lead to reforms in China. Both parties made the same bet. The only problem is it didn't work out. We were wrong. The CCP laughed at our naivety while they took advantage of our good faith. But that era of wishful thinking is over. Joe, is this committee a good idea? And I ask that in the context that there's no shortage of committees dealing with foreign affairs and defense and other competition issues. Do we need another one? Well, I mean, my sense, at least having watched the first hearing, is that this committee at least has the virtue of being serious, which is not something that you always take for granted on Capitol Hill. I think that they accomplish a couple of things in in their first session, and if they can keep going on these strands, it'll end up being pretty productive. One is that they came out swinging on the issue of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, the fact that it does have a very particular ideological organization. It has not scrubbed itself of the Communism part or the Marxist part. That is definitely its worldview. And I think that this is a point that we have often wanted to overlook in the West, particularly as we were pursuing commercial engagement. So just from a, you know, if you want to use the phrase, know your enemy or know your strategic competitor, that's a useful exercise. And I think that the other thing that I found useful listening to this compared to so much of the other discussion about China that tends to go on is that they were very careful about drawing a bright distinction between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. And I think that it is important to understand that the source of this tension and rivalry is the nature of the Communist Party regime. It is not animus directed at China as a country. And so I think that the more the, the U.S. can be clear on that issue, it will help, would hope, you know, shape some of these discussions in a very positive, useful direction moving forward. An important point, Joe. The Communist Party of China has something like 90 million members, so it's not a small group, but it's that 90 million who then rule the 1.4 billion. So they control the levers of power. And understanding that distinction is absolutely crucial and probably a good idea to have a congressional committee that zeroes in on China. I give both Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, and Mike Gallagher credit for directing this in a bipartisan fashion. It will have that much more, I think, potential impact and credibility as it pursues this in a bipartisan way. And the uh, ranking member, Mr. Uh, Krishnamurti, has so far seconded these intentions, and I think it's very useful. And China, Alicia, is an issue that has emerged as one in American politics that does have bipartisan support. That is the recognition of the China challenge, the recognition of the potential military threat it poses, and the focus on Chinese Communist Party behavior not only with its own people, but in the United States in the degree to which it attempts to influence U.S. public opinion and punish Chinese national dissenters who happen to live on U.S. soil. I think that's right. I think there's been a lot of interest among both parties investigating these uh, Confucius Institutes um, that are present on a lot of college campuses, as well as you're seeing more investigations. You saw this both in the Trump administration and the Biden administration of uh, researchers at universities and and whether there have been allegations and there have been charges against some for IP theft. Basically, they're they're taking IP and sharing it with Chinese companies or actually the Chinese government. 
So again, I think that's a bipartisan interest. You've seen a lot of bipartisan interest in TikTok and WeChat trying to limit their influence in the U.S. And the both um, right now, there is actually a bill in the House and there's a little division between the Republicans and Democrats, whether TikTok should be banned outright or if the CFIUS, which would basically give the White House more discretion on how to restrict TikTok's influence in the U.S. And so, but there's a lot of interest in, in scrutinizing TikTok and its surveillance methods and privacy violations and how it could be used both to, you know, surveil Chinese nationals in the U.S. and potentially also U.S. citizens. So I think there are a lot of things that for Congress to look at here. And probably IP, I think, is, in my mind, one of the biggest concerns because we've continued to have companies come forward to complain about Chinese companies or, again, the earlier point, Chinese researchers stealing their IP. And this was something that the Trump trade agreement was supposed to address, but really hasn't done a very good job of. CFIUS, the acronym you use being short for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, it's an executive branch committee which reviews foreign investments for national security concerns. House Republicans want to go beyond that and actually some of them ban uh, TikTok. Biden administration has already said that TikTok will have to be out of U.S. government systems within 30 days. So there is even some bipartisan agreement on that, although not to the extent of going as far as banning TikTok. Let's listen to H.R. McMaster. He was one of Donald Trump's national security advisors, also a general who fought in Iraq. He testified at the committee hearing this week. Let's listen. The balloon, I think, is in many ways uh, you know, a metaphor uh, for the, the massive effort at, at espionage. And I think you can see from the path that the balloon took, and of course I'm not privy to anything that's uh, anything that you are or that our government is at this stage, that have maneuvered over strategic locations. I think when, when we figure out where previous balloons have gone, that's the same, we'll see the same pattern of trying to get a better look from signals intelligence, communications intelligence, as well as imagery of some of our most sensitive sites. And then when you combine that though, with the massive buildup of Chinese strategic forces, nuclear forces, I think that's a cause for concern. And then you combine that with Xi Jinping talking about preemptive war. That's an even greater cause for concern. Joe, the competition with China is probably, well, it's something we haven't faced in decades. And it's very different than the competition we had with the Soviet Union, where there was a complete or near total separation commercially, technologically, between the Soviet Union and the United States and most of the West, for that matter. Now, in the case of China, we don't have that separation. What we have is deep, deep ties between the economies of both countries, both as customers and as providers of goods. China obviously has an enormous trade surplus with the United States, but the U.S. sells an enormous amount of goods, including food in particular, to China. So there's a lot of mutual dependence. So the issue of how much to decouple, that's the word du jour, decouple the two U.S. economy from the Chinese economy is a really important one. And I think the committee will have to address that. We're seeing it already emerge in the presidential campaign where Donald Trump has basically come out recently and said we should cut all ties economically to China, which if done in a rapid fashion would have enormously damaging economic impact. 
On the other hand, and you and I have discussed this, I think any prudent American CEO is dependent upon a Chinese supply chain, needs to diversify that pronto in case you end up with some kind of political, diplomatic, military event that drives the politics so they are forced to find other suppliers and they better start doing it now. Yeah, and I think that actually is a good lens to view that clip from General McMaster's uh, you know, we played a minute ago, because a point I took away from his testimony at that committee is that we have to understand that China is interested in strategic competition or rivalry with us, even if we are not interested in rivalry with them. And so I think that there is this period now where people are kind of waking up to the fact that the Communist Party regime has always understood itself to be in competition with the U.S. and headed towards some kind of reckoning of some sort, whether it was over Taiwan or in some other way, um, the U.S. has not always understood that that was kind of where they were coming from. And I think that one outgrowth of this committee process might be greater public awareness about that. I view this almost as a public educational exercise to try to make sure that Americans fully understand what the situation is there. And that is going to feed directly into a lot of these business issues, because while there's this big political discussion going on about the form that decoupling should take with this suggestion that it ought to be accomplished through various forms of regulation, the reality is that a lot of individual businesses and their CEOs and boards right now need to be or are making decisions about what their future relationship with China is going to be. You know, what is their China supply chain going to be? How much are they going to reply on the China market for revenue growth? That kind of question. And I think from that perspective, for people who are in the situation of having to make that decision about their own business, you know, potentially the kind of information that comes out of hearings like this ends up being very useful. It is going to be fascinating to watch because the U.S.-China competition is arguably the most significant one in all of world affairs these days, at least over the longer term, of course, Ukraine and Russia conflict being the most urgent issue of the moment. But even that touches on U.S.-China relations as China debates whether or not to aid Russia militarily in Ukraine. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Alicia. And thank you all for listening. We're here every day on Potomac Watch. Be sure to subscribe to us on your uh, favorite podcast distributor. Send those cards and letters in, by the way, to Podcast at wsj.com. Thanks so much for listening. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal trillion dollar shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.